Today is Friday, June eleventh, twenty twenty one. It's not what happens to you; it's what you do with what happens. Epictetus. You're listening to episode two forty six: How to Live a Fantastic Life with Dr. Alan Laika. He was a well-known doctor. He was meeting a well-known doctor, and he, there was nothing to it. So he was there to meet me. And I said, oh, thank God. You're a sight for sore eyes. He said, well, thank you. He said, let's talk. And we talked for hours. And David said some magical words. He said, I think history is repeating itself, and I think I can make you better, he said. And he did. He started me on treatment. That's why I'm alive 18 years after the fact. I'm thriving. Wow. I'm just doing great. And David did an amazing job for me. But when you go through something like this, Tudor, you, you really look around. You look at the pieces. You start to realize there are things that you didn't realize before. And you find life's meaning. You've been given a second chance. So you start to give back. This is the Dance of Life. My name is Tudor Alexander, and we are going to go on a journey to hack your mind, body, and soul for living your best life yet. Tune in every week to learn something new, grow, and get inspired as we discover the secrets of success and practice the art of fulfillment. And if it's one thing I hope you learn from today, it's that your life is a dance. And just like any dance, you can learn to dance it well. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. As always, thank you so much for being here and spending a little bit of your Friday with me. Hope you're having a great day. My guest is Dr. Alan Laika. He suffered a near-death experience and sought renewal through the wisdom of human virtues that refocused him on a life of richness, appreciation, joy, and service. Great story he has to share, and he's now a full-time life-changing speaker, acclaimed author, and transformational leader. Dr. Allen has extensive personal experience in the subject of living a fantastic life and what he calls turning points. He's an international keynote speaker, TEDx speaker, three times best-selling author, and life-changing coach. He's written 17 books, over 30 academic papers, and graced many international stages during his lifetime. Today, I'm going to pick Dr. Allen's brain about everything he's learned. He's quite the man. And so he's, you know, especially his near-death experience and how that changed his life. You know, he wrote a book about it and I'm really curious, such a great, I mean, it's, it's a, a hard experience to go through. Obviously it's a terrible experience, but what a great experience to live through and to gain lessons and share with others. So not too many people go through that and, and especially to use it as productively as he has. So very excited to share his lessons with you and what it means to create a turning point in your life. Also, we're going to dive into some other topics that are important for living a fantastic life, you know, which is forgiveness and how to live in abundance and all these wonderful things that are so important that are timeless lessons. If you want a free book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, you can go to the link. I'm going to, it's a long link, so I'm going to post it in the show notes. This is episode 246. So just go to danceoflife.com slash podcast if you want to stay in touch and access all the show notes. I'll put the link for the book and everything on there. It's episode 246. If you like this, make sure you share it. Sharing is caring. Thank you so much for being here. And let's do this. 
How to Live a Fantastic Life with Dr. Alan Leica. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show, Dr. Allen. I'm so excited to have you. I mean, uh, you have quite a quite a background. Holy smoke, 17 books you've written. Uh, you've been on uh, TEDx stages, you know, speaking across the world. I mean, I'm just so honored to have you on the show, excited to chat about your, your life, especially your near-death experience. I want to know what that's all about. Obviously, that's uh, that's the main event. But, you know, there's so many wonderful things that you talk about regularly uh, like forgiveness and abundance. I'm really excited to have you on the show and, and chat. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a great time uh, to be on your show. Yeah. You know, I think the timing is really good. You know, people uh, have gone through a lot in the last year and a half. And I think that these kinds of stories and insights are so important as we deal with um, you know, so many of the internal and external struggles, right? I mean, with everything that's happened with, uh, with the last year and a half, I think people have had to reevaluate their lives on many planes from health perspective, from business, from, you know, even from their own sense of meaning and what they want. And so it's very, very important. Yeah, I think it is. And I think, you know, what I've gone through on a personal basis, the world is going through on a, on a global basis right now. So I think it's yeah. important for people to, to realize that it's a microcosm of what's going on. Well, yeah, you know, I always say if you understand the inside, meaning yourself, obviously, it's a lot easier to understand the world, right? I mean, that's where it starts is really our own internal world. So... Now, if we can master our internal world, the outer external world is not as important. So true. You know, that's, that's a timeless lesson you know, ever since, you know, I can remember reading anything personal growth related. That seems to be the, the timeless lesson, right? Is ultimately how can we, how can we master that internal landscape? And it's such a, to me, my background has been in movement. And one thing I've found valuable is, you know, to, to use the physical world as a reference or a guide for the internal world, which is very murky. You know, it's very uh, obvious when you're, for example, walking around in space, which way you're going, hopefully, <laughs> and, uh, you know, how fast you're moving. Uh, but, you know, when your thoughts are moving in your mind and you have ideas in different places and belief systems, you know, there's no physical place that those things exist necessarily. And so it's a lot more murky environment. You really have to quote unquote, do a lot of training to do the mental gymnastics to, um, to dodge those blind spots, to work through them, to look within. I mean, I don't know. It's just, uh, it seems a lot, very much like a dance to me. Exactly. And I think it's important to, to maneuver all these things. So let's go back. You know, my journey started, so to speak, in 2003. I was at the top of my career. I was a world-class cosmetic surgeon. And I was, my wife and I decided to take a vacation. So we decided to go to the happiest place on earth, Disneyland. And uh, nice. we're walking. And my Florida wife or turned, California? In California. And, and my wife turned to me nice. and said, you know, what's wrong with you? I, you know, 
I, for once in my life, I hadn't said anything wrong. I hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't even thunk anything wrong. So I was taken out of the womb. I said, what do you mean, dear? She said, well, listen to your foot. I said, that's the stupidest thing you've, you've ever said. She said, no, it's not. Listen to it. My right foot had suddenly and mysteriously developed a right foot drop. It came out of the blue. It came out of nowhere. And uh, hmm. I, I said, gee, I don't know what's wrong. She said, did you have a stroke? I said, dear, you're a doctor. I'm a doctor. This is not how strokes present. If I had a stroke, I'd be laying on the pavement right now. She said, well, something's wrong. And when you get back, you better get this checked out. Well, when your wife says that in that tone of voice, what do you do, Tudor? You check it out. <laughs> you check it out. Yeah. So I saw dozens of doctors. No, I saw hundreds of doctors. They did CAT scans. They did brain scans. They did MRIs. They did scan scans. And you know what they showed at the end of the day? Absolutely nothing. And you know, when a doctor sees absolutely nothing on tests, what he does is more tests and more tests mm. and more tests. So I had every test known to man at that time. And I think they even invented a few tests just for me to figure out what was wrong. Wow. And they still showed nothing. So they said, well, we're going to send you to a world-leading neurologist. A neurologist is the brain guy. He's got all the pieces. He yeah. knows all the answers. He's supposed to know all the answers. So I went to see this world-leading neurologist. I said, hi. He said, hi, you better be sitting down when I tell you this. You have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Get your affairs in order wow. because in six months you're going to be dead. I said, is there a way to wow. prove this diagnosis? He said, of course, on autopsy. <laughs> on autopsy, he said. I said, you know, I'm not going to die to prove you wrong. But, you know, that's wow. how my life almost came to a shrieking stop and, a, and so on, you know. And when you go through something like this, you, you basically look at the pieces. You start to evaluate things. And you go through the phases of death and dying that Elizabeth Cooper Ross wrote in her book on death and dying. And during that, you go through five phases. You go through anger, anger. You're angry at the world because your life has been cut off. You go through bargaining. Oh, God, please don't let this happen. I'll do anything if, I, if you do not let this happen. And you go through denial. Denial is another big thing. And, and you go through to make sure that you know, you deny that anything happened, but you know, in your heart of hearts, something's wrong because you have a dropped right foot. And I was, and I was going through this, my right hand became dysfunctional too. It couldn't do the things that, that it used to do. And then you go through depression. Tudor, have you ever been depressed? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, in different parts of my life and not, not anytime recently, thankfully, but <laughs> definitely been there for sure. Yeah. Depression is one of the worst. That's when everything's black. That's when everything's gloomy. You're laying in bed, yeah. staring at the ceiling, wondering if you should get out of bed for the day because it doesn't matter. You're going to be dead in six months. And you go through all this, these conumptions and everything's black. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You can't do anything. And nothing has any purpose or meaning when you're really depressed. Nothing. So, you know, that's where I think the, the hardest part is dealing with those emotions, anger, denial, bargaining, depression. The last emotion that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says is acceptance. 
but I wasn't going to accept a diagnosis that I thought was wrong. And that was important for me to fight it off. So, uh, you know, back in 2003, I, I was really worried. And I said, wife, what's wrong with me? She said, I haven't got the faintest idea, but you're smart. You can figure it out. Well, I think, thanks, dear. I've just saw hundreds of doctors and they couldn't figure it out. Yet you think I can figure it out? She said, you're smart. You can figure it out. I said, thanks for the vote of confidence, dear. Well, back in 2003, something new was invented. You might have heard of it, Tudor. It's called the internet. You ever hear of that beast? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those number one things right now. And it's even become more popular with, with COVID on because that's how we communicate these days. We communicate because of Zoom. Yeah. We can communicate because of things. And many people live on the internet day in and day out. Well, you know, uh, I, I turned to the internet. But back in 2003, it was really primitive. We had dial-on connections. That's when your phone communicated with another phone. And it went, terrible, obnoxious sound for about 15 minutes till it connected. And when it connected, yep. and you finally got in touch with whoever you were getting in touch with. But we didn't have Dr. Google back then. We didn't have Dr. Yahoo back then. All we had was a very primitive system where you could communicate from one spot to one spot. And you really had to get on and use a language like DOS to communicate. But thankfully, I had friends that were nerds and they were able to guide me. And I was able to find this, a lot of good things. And I found a lot of bad things. You know, the internet is like the world's best library, but it's filled with garbage cans. But you can't tell the garbage cans yeah. <laughs> from the real good resources. And I think you probably found that as you've been going on the internet. I think everybody finds that. There's so much garbage and baloney there, you really can't find the answers. Well, fortunately, I was able to find the story of a doctor by the name of David Marks in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And he had a story very similar to mine, but he got worse much more rapidly. And he was on his deathbed when people from around the world were coming to say goodbye to him. He was such a well-known doctor that everybody loved him and wanted to say goodbye. Well, a doctor from Texas came up and saw Dr. Dr. Martz, and he said, you know, there's something wrong with this picture. I don't think you have ALS. I don't think you have Lou Gehrig's disease. David said, well, what do I have? The doctor from Texas said, I think you have chronic Lyme's disease. That's the bite of a tick, and it mimics ALS. It looks exactly wow. like it. But he said, you know, if I'm right, I can start you on treatment, and I can make you better. I said, wow, uh, I got to get in touch with David because he's got some pieces to the puzzle that, that I, I knew could help. And the doctor from Texas started David on, on a treatment. And like Lazarus, he rose from the dead. Within two weeks, he was back wow. to normal. So I said, geez, wow, that's crazy. this is crazy. I said, I got to get in touch with them. So I phoned every hospital in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I got in touch with David at the Methodist Hospital. And we talked for hours. And he said, can you come down and see me? And I said, sure. When would you like to see me? He said, what about right now? I said, David, um, I'd love to, but it's Thanksgiving weekend in Canada. My wife's invited 50 people over. He said, well, aren't there any planes in Canada? He said, aren't there any planes? Get on one. 
So I go to my wife and I said, dear, I'm not going to be here for Thanksgiving. She said, why? I've invited 50 people over. I said, well, there's a doctor in, in Colorado Springs that claims he has an answer for my problem. She said, well, let me pack your bags for you. She said, I'll take care of the 50 people. That's nothing for me. She said, but I think you need to go down. I'll even drive you to the airport. So I got on a plane from Edmonton to Denver. It was a great flight, about two and a half hours long. Then I got on a plane from Denver to Colorado Springs. You ever been on that plane, Tudor? Have you ever no, been on not from uh, Denver to Colorado Springs, no. <laughs> Have you ever been on a rinky-dink flight? A little puddle jumper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. And they're terrible. Well, especially at that time of the day. You know, the air comes off the desert at that time of the day. And it causes eddies, mm. which means turbulence. And that means you're, the plane will climb 100 feet and drop 100 feet without warning. Bang! Then it'll climb another 100 feet. Then it'll drop another 200 feet without warning. So the flight is 15 minutes long. But you're bopped about like a cork in a tidal wave. You go through the drop of wow. doom at Disneyland over and over and over again until you finally crawl off the plane. Well, after 15 minutes, I crawled off that plane. I was green. And there was David on the tarmac to meet me. He was a well-known doctor. He was meeting a well-known doctor. And he, there was nothing to it. So he was there to meet me. And I said, oh, thank God. You're a sight for sore eyes. He said, well, thank you. He said, let's talk. And we talked for hours. And David said some magical words. He said, I think history is repeating itself. And I think I can make you better, he said. And he did. He started me on treatment. That's why I'm alive 18 years after the fact. I'm thriving. Wow. I'm just doing great. And David did an amazing job for me. But when you go through something like this, Tudor, you, you really look around. You look at the pieces you start to realize there are things that you didn't realize before and you find life's meaning. You've been given a second chance. So you start to give back. And I started to give back and I supported a charity called the YWCA Women of Distinction. It was a big a banquet that we uh, awarded women in our society awards for just the things they'd done. And a lady by the name of Harriet Tinka came up and she applied for an award called the Turning Points Award. And her whole goal was to meet me. And she wanted to buy me lunch. And I said, well, sure, you can buy me lunch. She said, you know, i got to tell you my story. Well, Harry's story was similar to mine, yet different. She was a world-class model who was walking the, 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 the gang ropes and cat ropes of New York City. She was doing a great job. But she grew tired of the modeling industry. So she decided to take up her second passion, which was accounting. So she then uh, took up accounting. She went to the University of Calgary to take an accounting degree. But there she met a very evil fellow who ended up kidnapping her, stabbing her, and leaving her for dead. So Holy she got through smokes. that. She got through that. And during rehab, she met a little girl by the name of Amber, who was well beyond her years, and said, you know, Harriet, you need to use your story to tell others how wonderful the world is. And so Harriet said to me, um, we got to write our stories together. And that's where we end up writing our book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, which is based on our yeah. life story. And 
We put it together. It took over seven years to write, and it became a bestseller in the pandemic of 2020. Nice. So that's what that's I so have cool. to say. Um, you know, yeah. it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens. So true, man. I mean, I love that, especially, uh, you know, there's so many things that happened in the last year and a half. I mean, people lost their jobs, people lost friends. I mean, I had a friend, I had a lot of friends actually, unfortunately who passed away. Um, you know, some of them from COVID, some of them from, um, other complications and issues, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it was definitely a year where we, where we had to practice everything we knew and we didn't know for sure. Right. And I think, uh, what you said about acceptance, is is so so important um i'm i'm really curious about this uh phrase or, or distinction you say called turning points i love that way of looking at it it's a turning point it's it's an inflection point a point where you can make a different decision and what do those mean to you and how does somebody recognize a turning point in their life you know, sometimes turning points are thrust upon us that we don't have any choice in them. Other times yeah. they come about uh, and we we write, we basically meet a crisis in our life, a crisis that isn't being solved by what we're doing. You know, the definition of insanity is trying to do the same thing over and over and over and get different results. So I think that's an important uh, concept in, in the turning point. When you get to a turning mm -hmm. point, you have to try different things. You have to try different ways of doing things. And you have to try and overcome them. Uh, you know, but the greatest thing about a turning point is that once you take it, the world becomes a better place. It becomes much uh, more involved than it ever was. And you really recreate your own environment. And you decide, as I say, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens. Let's suppose you were given a load of lemons. Well, you can gripe and complain about the lemons, or you can make lemonade. I think it's better to make lemonade than be uh, to be complaining about the lemons that you were given. But the best way to do that is yeah. to do tiny little things to make the world a better place. And I'm going to challenge your audience that listens to your podcast to do something for somebody today that they wouldn't regularly do. I'm going to challenge them to, to make the world a better place for somebody. It could be something as little as giving a person a smile who doesn't have one. It could be as little as having a conversation with somebody that you haven't spoken to for years. It could be as little as baking a dozen cookies and leaving on your neighbor's doorstep, ringing the doorbell to socially distance and say, hey, these are for you. You know, just little things make mm. all the difference. Yeah, I was just talking to somebody about how, you know, a lot of times, especially when we're faced with these challenges in our life, obviously, many of the biggest challenges are thrust upon us, you know, unexpectedly. And I think that's part of the part of the process, right? But one of the things that we can get overwhelmed with is feeling like we're disconnected from from where we are now in the in the state that we feel and the, the future state of being a little more happy, more appreciative, whatever. And just like with anything else, we see, we don't see the connecting point to that. And one of the things I was chatting with, uh, with somebody the other day was about, you know, doing, just finding one good thing, just find one good thing about the day, you know, whether it's something you appreciate or, you know, something that you're grateful for something simple, 
just do that one thing. And that can be a seed to sort of begin shifting that internal vibration, that internal, you know, physiology. And rather than thinking, oh man, you know, let me just, I have to write a hundred things that I'm grateful for today again, and make sure I do my gratitude and it becomes a, a burden, but rather just find one thing. If you can do that, then that's sort of like the the little seed that can plant the future. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't take much baby steps. And all you have to do is concentrate on baby steps. It doesn't have to be a whole life changing event. Just concentrate on the things that are there. What do you think is the obstacle, or I should say, what are some of the obstacles in general that prevent people from being resourceful with their failure? You know, because ultimately, you know, I think that every failure in our life is happening for us, but to recognize that, you know, and to get into a practice, even more important to get into a practice where you're seeing that, you know, every time you fail, I mean, that's, that takes a lot of practice. And so how, how do people get to that point? What, what are the obstacles they need to overcome that prevent them from utilizing failure as an opportunity? You know, I think one of the traits that we always have to work on is tenacity. And I'm going to read a little story about tenacity from my book because I think it's important. Once you read, once you realize how important tenacity is as a, as a thing, it really makes so much different for people. It makes the world a better place. So here's the story of a very well-known person. He was born into poverty, but he, he had so many defeats that it was unreal. Uh, for example, in 1816, his family was forced out of his home. He had to work to support them. In 1818, his mother died. In 1831, he failed in business. In 1832, he ran for the state legislature and lost. In 1832, he also lost his job. He wanted to go to law school, but couldn't get in. He borrowed some money in 1833 from a friend to begin a business. And by the end of the year, he was bankrupt. He spent the next 17 years of his life paying off his debt. In 1834, he ran for the state legislature again and won. In 1835, he was engaged to be married. His sweetheart died and his heart was broken. In 1836, he had a nervous breakdown and was in bed for six months. In 1838, he sought to become speaker of the state legislature and was defeated. In 1840, he sought to become an elector, elector, an elector and was defeated. In 1843, he ran for Congress and lost. In 1846, he ran for Congress again. This time won, he went to Washington and did a good job. But when he ran for re-election in 1848, he lost. He sought the job of a land officer in his home state in 1849 and was rejected. And so on and so on and so on. But finally, in 1860, he was elected president of the United States. That was the story of Abe Lincoln. How many defeats did yeah. I mention there? He had dozens of them, one after the other, and yet he kept on going. But that's the thing about defeat, is if you don't keep on going, you will be uh, forever a victim. And I think it's the victim mentality that you have to come at. So... What is tenacity? It's the act of being persistent. And what is persistent? Persistence is tenacity. So remember, 
Keep on going. Try little things. Do little things. And do them differently than you did before. That's good. I love learning. Uh, I mean, I knew a little bit about Abe Lincoln, but I didn't know the full extent that you just detailed there. I mean, that's fascinating. And it's so inspiring to to hear that. It's like, wow, you know, anything's possible when you really put your head down to it and you really don't give up. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. I think in everything that I've seen, it's really like that whole idea of the water didn't break the rock because of its power. It broke it because of its consistency. You know, the, the one fundamental principle I'm seeing in every formula for success is simply being consistent and not giving up. <laughs> and I think that's the important part of all this. Little things make all the difference. And if you're determined enough and willing to pay the price, you can get it done. That's from Mike Ditka, the coach of the Chicago Bears, when he was a Super Bowl yeah. winner. How many times did the Chicago Bears lose before they finally won under Mike Ditka? Oh, you know, yeah. It was a legacy <laughs> that they'd lose every year. Yeah. The Bears. The Bears. <laughs> the Bears. They, they couldn't do very much. How do you think that the uh, COVID situation in the last year and a half has been an opportunity for people? And what, what is the opportunity in everything that's I'll happened? I'll look at it, even at this, uh, Tudor. You know, we're communicating on Zoom because, because of the way the world is. You know, you're in Phoenix. I'm in Edmonton. Yep, but look at the opportunity here. We can influence thousands of people just by being on this podcast. Never before yeah. in the history of the world have we had tools that have made the world such a smaller, stronger place. It really has been an amazing thing that we've done. So little baby steps have made all the difference. And communication has been something that's been instrumental. Uh, yes, people are now working from their homes more. Businesses, entire businesses are being run for homes now, something we would have never seen before. So I think although the uh, COVID has been a trying time for many people, and a lot of people have lost their jobs. It's allowed us to recreate jobs and allowed us to do things in better, uh, more consistent ways. I have a question for you about the relationship between physical ailments and spiritual essence, because I've always found that, I mean, my personal belief is the body is a canvas upon which our spirit learns certain lessons, you know? And so obviously based on what we need to learn in our own individualized journey, um, you know, we are presented with various health challenges in our life that, that each come with a spiritual lesson. Oftentimes I've found that when the spiritual lesson is discovered, then the health thing also um, kind of resolves itself too, interestingly enough. And so I'm curious to get your take on it, especially having, uh, gone through, you know, what you went through with Lyme disease. I mean, Lyme disease is, I've known a few people with that. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's tough. It's not fun at all, obviously. And so I'm sure you have a take on it. So well, I'm curious what your right take is. Now, I think people have to realize that we are given challenges all the time. And some of those challenges are yeah. mental, some of them are physical. But the physical challenges have a mental overlay. And once you overcome the physical challenge, the mental challenge overlay gets resolved as well. And in the mental challenge, mm -hmm. I think there's the spiritual realm as well, 
which allows us to do things. And in that way, I think we become more humanistic. I think a person that goes through something like I do, like I did, uh, likes to give back. I think that's a very, very common thing for people who have gone through these terrible things. Uh, they, they want to give back. They want to make the world a better place. And they want to make the world a, a, a much better place than it was. Yeah. And that's what really abundance is all about to me too, as well. I mean, when you're talking about those things, it really makes me think of just the principle of abundance and how ultimately our greatest wealth is when we can give away and we can give to others, we can be of service, we can contribute. Um, and you, you talk a lot about abundance as well, I believe. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, what's your take on how somebody can shift from scare what is scarcity mode first off let's let's identify that uh and how does somebody shift into an abundant lifestyle abundant mindset what are some I, of the I things think, you do I, every I day? think people can look at the world in two different ways one is that resources are scarce that there just yeah. isn't enough resources to go around or you can shift into a, a mindset where there's abundance and there's enough resources for everybody providing they look for it and work for it and I think it's the abundance mindset that's the main thing. You know, look, look at restaurants, for example. If you thought there was a scarcity model, then perhaps the only restaurant we would have would be McDonald's. But there's McDonald's, there's Burger King, there's pizza places, there's Chinese restaurants, there's Italian restaurants, there's all these others that are out there. Now, if we just had a scarcity mentality, I think we'd only have one type of thing all the time. But in the reality of the world is that truly anytime there's a situation that comes up, there really is abundance and there is a lot to, to go on that way. People have to realize that. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a practice. I, I uh, it took me a good part of my early adult life to really realize what are the things that I need to do every day to, shift my thinking and shift my interpretation of the world. I mean, there's still things that happen every day where, you know, your gut, your gut reaction is like, you know, <laughs> to pull back and to shrink obviously, but you know, you don't stay there. And I think that's the key ultimately is developing a habit or a series of habits that basically um, help you leverage life's unavoidable changes, you know, cause life is always going to change, but how you leverage those changes and how long you, you choose to stay there uh, and until you get back into productivity and abundance, I think that's really the, the key. You know, Christopher Reeves, Superman, once had a horrific accident where he was paralyzed from the next down. But you know, oh, yeah. it's, it's not the hand that you're dealt. I think it's the game that's more worthwhile and how you play that game is worthwhile. And Christopher Reeves then became a world-class speaker and was able to use his inability to do things to really make it a better place. And I think that's the attitude that you have to go forward with. You can be a victim and look at things from a victim mentality, or you can look at it from a victor's mentality. And I think that's very important to do so. Oh, I like that. Victim versus victor. That's cool. I never heard the, those two compared to each other. That's cool. I like that. Thank you. Is there anything you do on a daily basis to, um, you know, that's part of your routine, basically the kind of, keep you grounded and all these things that we're talking about? Well, you know, I'm a spiritual person and I do believe in God and I 
do pray and I do those things and I also meditate. So those things help me to keep grounded in the, in the greater powers that are out there. And I think that should be part of everybody's routine. And let the stresses mm. fall off you like water off a duck. And that way it becomes a better uh, insightful world. Yeah, so true. And I, I think that's so important to have that connection with the, with the higher power, with the sense that, you know, there is something more intelligent than you in this world, whatever this world is, that's, that's steering things. I mean, I, I truly believe that's one of the fundamental keys to success because you, you can, you know, there's a, I think there's a passage from the Bible, but it's, it, you know, there's so many great quotes in there, but one of them is like, you know, what's the point if somebody has gotten the whole world, if they're going to lose their soul, you know, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it obviously, but uh, that's, that's really the thing is ultimately the world is transitory and it's passing. But if you, have a spiritual sense of this higher power, something that's working together with you to create the world. I think that you'll be much happier, much more fulfilled and uh, much more connected. And who knows? I mean, who knows what happens after we die, but uh, I I'm a believer that we don't really die. I think we just kind of transition. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there is definitely something greater out there. I believe that. I think so. And uh, I'll never be able to prove it until we die. I'm not willing to go there yet. So yeah. I think it's important to do all we can in this world before we go on to the next. I mean, for me, you know, it's, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's so hard to ignore. Like, you know, I, I go a lot outside for walks and on my bike, I like to go hiking. I like to, you know, just kind of really connect to nature as much as I can. And every time I do, you know, you look at anything in nature and it's just so beautiful and harmonious and well put together and intelligently put together. I mean, it's to me, it's just inescapable to see all the beauty of the world and to not see that that is a reflection inherently of some sort of intelligence. I mean, to me, that's just, you know, uh, I don't know, obvious, I guess, <laughs> but for some people it's not, you know, but I, I really do think it is. I think so. And I think, you know, we have to, open our minds to really perceive the world that's there. Yeah. And I think we have to really be joyful for the things. And another thing we should strive to do is have an attitude of gratitude. Yeah. And another thing I think people should do is have a gratitude journal where they write down three things that they're grateful for every day. And I think that makes the world a better place as well. You talk about forgiveness a lot too. And I wanted to, hover over that a little bit, because I think that's such an important topic. And I actually haven't talked about forgiveness too much on the show um, in recent months. So, you know, why is forgiveness important to you? You know, I think all of us have some things that we've done wrong, and we've done things wrong for ourselves, and we've done other things that are harmful as well. Uh, you know, it's probably the hardest thing that we can do to forgive others and ourselves. Yeah. If we don't forgive others, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right. You know, it's, it's not a very smart thing to do. And, you know, when a snake bites you, it's not the, it's not the snake bite that kills you. It's the poison that goes about your system that yeah. keeps on festering and keeps on going through. And that gives you the, the, the death from the venom that's there. So I think it's very important to, to, um, to literally uh, overcome things by 
by having an attitude of forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the things. You know, Nelson Mandela uh, in and uh, Sir uh, Reverend Tutu um, formed a Truth and Reconciliation Committee when um, South Africa went through apartheid and overcame the apartheid that was there. You know, they thought South Africa was going to erupt into a bloodbath where the blacks killed the whites and had reparation for everything that went on. But you know, they found forgiveness and they found a very important thing that was more important than that. So I think we need to get to a, a start of, of forgiveness, I think. And the hardest person ever to forgive is yourself for the, yeah. <laughs> for the things that you've done wrong in your life. What's been one of the hardest things for you to forgive yourself about? Well, what I found is when I went through what I went through and I had such an arsenic doctor that said, you know, you're going to die and yeah. there's no point about it. Well, I had to forgive the doctor that was there and forgive him for the things that he had done for me. Uh, Harriet had to forgive her kidnapper uh, and, and let that go. So I think it's important, but you know, forgiveness is not always easy. At times it feels more painful than the wound we suffered to forgive the one that inflicted it. And yet there is no peace without forgiveness. That's a, a quote from Marianne Williamson. Mm. I think that's very important there to try and get to that phase. What do you think, I mean, some of the challenges are that people have when forgiving others and how can they overcome them specifically? You know, I think first of all, you have to understand what your story is and uh, Desmond Tutu said the way to forgive a person is a four-step process. It means telling your story as it is, just telling it out, just letting the pieces lie, naming the hurt that was there and, and naming it so that you know it's granting forgiveness is the third step, but there's a fourth step and it's renewing or releasing the relationship was there. So I think it's very important that that when you go through something like this, you have to let go, but you also have to let the whole process go. Hmm. That fourth step, you said renewing? What, what or was releasing it? the relationship that was there. So if you're truly oh, going to forgive a person, you have to renew the relationship. You know, you really have to let it be as it was. You have to let yeah. that relationship grow again. That's a good point. Renewing or releasing. I mean, really it's uh, once something's happened, if you want to move forward, you have to, like you said, let it go. I mean, it has to be either a new iteration, a new start, a new creation, or all right, you know, we're just letting it go. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that's why it's not just forgiving. It's also letting it be, letting mm. it go. So hard, you know, it's forgiveness is, is probably one of the hardest things that we are faced with spiritually here. But I think also, like you said, there's no, well, or apparently Marianne Williamson said, uh, there's no peace without it, right? Ultimately, that's, that's really the thing is it's so painful, but it is the way towards peace. And I think we, I, I see forgiveness too on a, I mean, it's obviously the interpersonal level where we have interpersonal interactions, um, you know, and that that's a huge part of it. But also for me, forgiveness means being in line with 
the constantly changing nature of the universe. I mean, in the, for example, you know, it's like every minute, every second, something is always moving and changing. It doesn't, the world doesn't hang on to the past. And in the same way, like, you know, you stub your toe, for example, on an inanimate object, that's a change that happened. And, you know, you might get angry, you might start complaining, you might start thinking, oh, my life sucks. My, my day is terrible. It's off to a terrible start, you know, and you have all this, uh, quote unquote, venom right inside your body. And really it's like forgiveness has to come in play in these situations that are not even interpersonal. I mean, it's you in the bed or, you know, whatever you, you dropped a, a dish and it shattered, you know, on the ground or something and it made a loud noise and you got hurt or whatever, you know, being able to let go of these changes of life. And I guess, quote unquote, go with the flow to use a, an overdone saying, but, you know, basically just being able to go with the flow. I mean, to forgive the changes of life. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, darkness cannot drive out the darkness. Only light can do that. Yeah. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So that's an important concept as well. It's mm. the opposites that seem to be the importance in something like this. Yeah, so true. I always uh, <clears throat> I always talk about that myself too, with the importance of opposites and and finding the opposite of what the situation is, because that's how you create that dynamic balance, right? I mean, I, to me, that's just again, I see that everywhere in nature. When I walk around, you see the birds and the bees, you see the flowers, the roots, the trees, duality. I mean, it's all part of, to me, again, that dance of life, but that's just how I see things. But yeah, duality and seeing the opposite is so, so, so important. I mean, especially with people too, I think that in our own interpersonal lives, we tend to be one way or another through, let's say through our nervous system. So we'll use something a little more concrete. So, you know, you have basically you're maybe a type A type of person that's very aggressive and, you know, forward. And so that predictably is going to lead you to certain challenges, you know, certain challenges where you'll have to, you know, learn to slow down, learn to go easier, go softer. So you have to learn the opposite and vice versa. If you're one, then, you know, you'll have to learn the opposite of that one. So yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. Yeah, I think so. You know, Oprah Winfrey said, forgiveness is giving up the hope that the past could have been different. It is accepting the past for what it was and using that moment of this time to help yourself move forward. So something important there. So in my book, I've sprinkled it with quotes from some of the yeah, world's masters. You got some good ones. <laughs> and uh, I've also, every, every chapter of my book has a story that helps to move things forward as well. So we've really given it a lot of thought in, in the way that the book was written. So it's very important. I'd like to even give a copy of a book of the book to everybody. If anybody would like a digital copy, all they can do is go to my site, Dr. D R Allen, A L L E N, Lyka, L Y C K A dot com, and click on the box that's there and get a free digital copy of my book. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put a link for that in the uh, show notes as well. So that way they can click on it if they are, need to find the link again. One more question for you, buddy, before you take off. What's What are you most grateful for today? You know, this morning I woke up and I looked at what was going to transcend and I saw that I was on your show. 
And I said, geez, I have another opportunity to influence people out there. So I said, this is a great thing that I can do today is make a little difference for even one person. I said, that really will make my day. And I said, geez, that really makes me grateful for today. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with my friend, Dr. Allen. You know, such a great episode with an inspiring story. You know, we can all change. I love the idea of turning points. And it's true that we can always change any moment if you just choose to do so. Yeah, I hope that this episode reminded you a little bit of this very important principle. Every moment is a new moment. And what that means is that you can also change and create something new in that moment. If you want free book, Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life. I'll post the link for it in the show notes for this episode. It's episode 246. And don't forget, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens. Quote by Epictetus. Good old Greek philosophy there. You know, (laughs) some old school knowledge, but it is true. It is so true. It's not what happens, but how we respond. You know, it's such a simple thing, right? But it's really not that simple. A lot of times we get caught up in the response and we react. And it's easier said than done, I know, but I hope that today was a great reminder through Dr. Allen's story that you have a choice. You have a choice as to how you respond to what happens in life. And that choice is something that happens every day. Every minute, every moment is a new moment. Look around you right now and just be present and realize that every moment is a new moment that you've never been to before. And when you really get that, you realize your own power to change. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have an amazing rest of your day. We'll see you soon on Tuesday for a little Transformation Tuesday. And until then, don't forget this either. Your life is a dance. So go out there and dance it well. more inspiration, free resources, and bonus content, stay connected at danceoflife.com.